You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Amen. Amen. Very glad that you're here uh, with us today. As we worship, if I haven't had the chance to meet you, I'm Ant, pastor here at Midtown Two Notch. If you're a visitor, if you're a guest, very glad that you're here, excited that you chose to worship with us uh, this morning. When you had the excuse that you lost an hour of sleep, you had the excuse to stay home, you still came here, I appreciate you and I see you. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 today, starting at verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting at verse 1, still working our way verse by verse through the book of 1 Corinthians. This is a very familiar passage, the one that uh, Tremont just read. You may have heard it read at weddings. You may have seen some of it quoted on um, coffee mugs, other types of cups. Everywhere else, nice Christian quotes are sold and advertised. In our culture, I think we read a passage about love and we often think about romantic love. I think that that's involved, I think that that's in view here in this passage, but that's not primarily what Paul is referring to in this specific Passage. I want to start with a question for us today. What is love, right? If you had to define it, if you had to define love, how would you define it? How would you explain it to someone? What is love to you? Many know of love to be a feeling, right? I have love in my heart. Love is a noun. It's something that I possess, and I feel it for you. I have love in my heart. In unseen ways, I possess love In my heart, I can feel the love that I have for you. Others say, no, 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 love is a verb. If I say I love you, that's a verb. That's an action word. Verb, I mean, love is about what you do. Love is about your actions. Don't tell me you love me if I can't see it in your actions. I believe love is actually much deeper and more complex than we often realize it to be. And part of the problem with this is our language, right? In the English language, we have one word for love. One word. In the ancient Greek where the, that the New Testament is written in, there, there are multiple words for love that are present. Philia or philia is a brotherly love, like a friendship type of love. Eros is a romantic love or a sexual love. Storge is a familial love, a love that a parent might have for their child and a child might have for their parents. So this, this gets tricky for us in English because we have to use the same word to describe our disposition towards tacos as I describe my disposition towards you. It's just love. I only have one word. I don't, I don't have a word that, that, that specifies what, what this affection is towards or what is the very nature of the affection that I have, right? If you, if you have to use the same word to describe how you feel about your favorite clothing store as you, de- as you define how God feels towards you, you're at a loss. Our language in and of itself messes up how we understand what love is to be. It's diluted. Because we have to use it to describe many different things. Biblical language in the ancient Greek doesn't work that way. There are different words that describe the concept of love. So we've reduced down the biblical perspective on love, in part, at least in part, because of we've blended so many aspects of love together. The Greek word for love that Paul uses in this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is the word agape. Agape. He doesn't use those other three that I mentioned before at all in this passage. It's all agape. Agape is a self-sacrificial love. It's a love that gives without expecting 
in return. The Bible authors use this word to describe God's love for his people. Check out what John writes in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. And every time this, you see the word love in this passage, you'll see, I mean, you, you should know that he's using the word agape to refer to love. Beloved, let us love, that's agape, one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Many scholars, many historians would say that the term agape is not used much at all in ancient Greek writing, that the primary place you're going to see it is in Christian writing. In the scriptures, and as as other Christians write to each other, use this word agape, it refers first to God's love. It refers first to the very nature of God, I should probably say, and Christians have used it to refer to how we are to love one another. It's almost exclusively used to refer to the love of the Christian God. But Christians aren't the only ones who have been told, sorry, the Corinthians at this time would have been using other words to describe love. They might have been using phileo. They might have been using storge. They've been using a variety of different terms. So Paul is trying to communicate to them. And what he's going to do in this passage in chapter 13 is communicate to them what godly love is actually about, what it actually looks like, what it is and what it isn't, because they would have been confused. They wouldn't have understood what this love actually was because they had so many different words that they could have used to describe love. Paul takes a word that is very rarely used a self-sacrificial love, and says that this is how we are to engage with one another, relate to one another. I find this to be relevant because the Corinthians aren't the only ones that have a messed up view of what love actually is. I believe we have been taught by our culture what love actually is, what it should be, what it looks like, what it doesn't look like. And so this, this passage is very helpful to us as we understand that agape is a different concept altogether maybe than what we are used to. And again, before we read chapter 13, I want to remind us of the context. This is coming right after chapter 12, right, where he's talking about spiritual gifts and how we should use spiritual gifts to walk in unity with with one another. And then the next chapter, chapter 14, he's going to get back into spiritual gifts again. And right here in the middle, it's a chapter about love. And I believe his primary point is that we are to use our spiritual gifts in love. The gifts that he has given us, that they are to be done in love. And he speaks, it, speaks about it very strongly. We'll start at verse 1. We'll read just verses 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. In this passage, notice what he mentions. Tongues, which is one of the spiritual gifts he brought up in chapter 12. Prophecy, same thing. The gift of knowledge he brought up in chapter 12. And the gift of faith as well. He's saying, if I have all these spiritual gifts, but I do not have love, it's it's worthless. It's nothing. I, I have nothing and I am gaining Nothing. He said tongues is just, a, it would just be a, like a, a, a gonging or a cymbal or a gong that's continuing to be hit over and over and over again. It's just noise. It's just noise. He said if we can prophesy, if we have the gift of knowledge and faith, but we don't have agape love, then we have nothing. He even goes as far as to say, if I die as a martyr for what I believe in, but don't have love, I have nothing. Friends, never believe 
that lie that having a lot of spiritual activity means that you are spiritually mature. Spiritual activity does not equal spiritual maturity. The gifts of the Spirit don't determine or don't reveal maturity in the Holy Spirit. Or do, not, do, not, do not reveal the activity of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It is the fruit of the Spirit that reveals our maturity, not the gifts of the Spirit. And the first fruit of the Spirit is love, agape. A lot of people misunderstand spiritual gifts. God's ministering, God's work through the Holy Spirit to minister through you is not an indicator of just how much you're actually walking in step with the Holy Spirit who is in you. It's not an indication. No matter how powerfully God works through someone, that does not mean that person has achieved a level of spiritual maturity. The first John passage we read says that God is agape, and thus our showing of agape actually shows that we know God, actually shows that we are his. God can work through anybody. He had a donkey prophesy in the Old Testament. What's your love like? What's your agape like? Don't make the mistake of believing that you're growing and maturing just because God is using you more. Don't make, the mistake of, don't make the mistake of assuming that others around you are mature in the faith just because of how you see God using them. God can, can and will use anyone he chooses for his purposes. Also, we see from this passage in these first three verses that love can't just be an action, right? That there has to be more to it. Because all these are the right, these are the right actions. We're talking about prophecy, we're talking about gift of knowledge, we're talking about the gift of faith, we're talking about dying as a martyr. And Paul says that it is possible to do those things without actually having love. It is possible to have all of the right actions and do all of the right things that from the outside seem as if you're walking in love and not actually have love and not actually have agape. That's what Paul is saying. Now I understand that it's important that we do display love with our actions. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But at the same time, if we only understand love as an action, our understanding of love is falling short. It's falling short. It's also wrong to think that someone's love is genuine if they have a lot of action, but that action is rooted in something other than love. I'll give you an example. Many people do a lot of good deeds to be seen. Many people do a lot of good deeds for a pat on the back. Many people do a lot of good deeds to be esteemed a little bit higher by other people. It is very easy to get into this trap where, where, where our, our actions that, that look like love are actually us just performing on a, on a stage for the applause of men. It is very easy to do everything that looks right, do everything that will be esteemed and be praised. We want to be seen as a good person or as a nice person. And it even gets to the point where we're actually capitalizing off of the needs of others so that other people will speak well of us. That's not love. That's selfishness and manipulation. If your response to the needs of others is so that someone else will will give you gratitude and say thank you to you, that's manipulation. You're capitalizing off of them to fill yourself up. This is not love. This is very easy for us to do. I would know. I wrestle with this every single Sunday before I come up to preach. 
Generally, sometime between 10.30 a.m. and 11 a.m., I'm praying and I'm asking God, God, help me to not worry about what other people are thinking about me. Help me to only worry about what you have to be said to your people today. Remind me of your love. Remind me that your love is steadfast for me and that you like me no matter what anyone else says or does or thinks about this. I have to remind myself of this every single week. Because if not, I'll just be using this as a platform to fill myself up because I haven't been filled up already on God's love. See, what this reveals to us is that we actually need to have received agape to extend agape. We actually need to have experienced it from God himself if we're going to be able to fully and truly extend it to others. We need to be filled up on God's love, and thus we are able to love others, and we don't need the approval and acceptance of others because we know we've already ha- we have all of that that we need in God. So now I can just come over and, and focus on the assignment that he's given me, no matter how people feel about it. Personally knowing his love empowers us to love without being selfish or manipulative. This love, this agape, it's beautiful and it's multifaceted. So what is it to have the aspects of love that Paul refers to here, these actions, and to have the love that's unseen? I, wanna, I like to put love in, different, in two different categories. There's this unseen love. That's the motivation. That's what I was talking about a little bit earlier. What motivates you? What's actually causing you to do the actions that you do? And then there's the seen aspects of love that are the physical actions that we engage in that reveal our love to others. Paul, from verses 4 through 7, is going to break down what love is and what love it's not. It's challenging. It's beautiful. It's complex. It's, it's absolutely glorious. Verse 4, love is patient. He begins, love is patient. He's referring to not having a short fuse. This isn't talking about patience as we often think of it, right? So this isn't, uh, you know, something you're trying to achieve or, or receive. It's taking longer than you want, and someone says, well, just be patient. Just be patient, right? That's, that's, that's not what this is talking about. This, this word could be translated long-suffering could be translated long-suffering. Paul says, love, true love, agape, is long-suffering. The biblical definition of this Greek term describes to be patient in bearing the offenses and injuries from others. To be patient in bearing the offenses and injuries from others. To be mild and slow in avenging. To be slow to anger. To be slow to punish. This word for patience requires the ability to endure when someone sins against you. They lied to you. They lied about you. They didn't keep their word. You, you shared something with them, and they were judgmental towards you, and you were ashamed of that. This definition of patience that Paul uses to describe agape to us as we endure with long-suffering. It says love is patient and kind. This word kind means to act benevolently. So this is an action word. And when you put it in conjunction with the word patience, it is to be, and then it means to, to be able to endure when someone sins against us and offends us and then be able to respond with acts of benevolence towards them. Love is patient and kind, Paul says. Love endures offenses and responds by blessing those that have offended us. It's to respond to someone treating us wrong by treating them well. Jackie Hill Perry has a quote, a quote. 
She says, choose to love even when you don't feel like it. Obedience often precedes affection. Choose to love even when you don't feel like it. Obedience often precedes affection. Because if agape is truly patient and kind, then that means you're going to be feeling some amount of hurt, some amount of pain when you're responding with acts of kindness, which means you're probably not going to feel like it. And we have a culture today that's so big on us just doing whatever we feel like is right in the moment that I'm, I'm, I'm nervous that for us as the church, our cultural understanding of how we should live will cause us to live in a way that's actually anti-love. Jackie Perry says, choose to love even when you don't feel like it. Obedience often precedes affection. It's the combination of patience and kindness. That makes it, to see, it makes it easy to see why John says that God is love, that God is agape, because this is how he always loves us, right? We have sinned against God hundreds on top of hundreds on top of hundreds of times, and he still continues to bless us and bless us and bless us, no matter how much our actions, our thoughts, our words, our practices offend him. He continues to extend his kindness to us. Love is patient and kind, Paul writes. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Paul continues on. The envious person is someone who is so hyper-focused on what they don't have or what they can't do that, that this contentment begins to kind of rumble inside of them, and that leads them to, to look at others negatively or dislike others who have the thing that they want so bad or who have accomplished the thing that they want to accomplish so much or have, has, who has been able to do the thing that they want to do. The envious person are hyper-focused on what they don't have and what they can't do. Now, the boastful person is hyper-focused as well, but they're hyper-focused on what they do have or what they can do, so much so that they can't stop bringing it up to those around them. The envious person is like, I can't stand them. They think they're something because they got blank. They think they're this or they think they're that because of this thing that's in their life that they have or that they can do. Maybe they're successful or gifted in some ways that you want to be successful or gifted in. Maybe their family behaves or is arranged in such a way that, that is not like yours, and so you're envious of them because of that. Maybe they have some type of relationship with a person that you desire to have. The envious person is, is so insecure with themselves that they have to demean others and put others down in, a, in an effort to, to feel okay with themselves. But the boastful and arrogant person has the same problem with the opposite symptom. They're so discontent and insecure with themselves that they got to let everyone know how good they have it and what they've accomplished so that they can feel okay with themselves. They actually try to consistently one-up everyone else and put themselves above others. It's a thing that we call leveling, where you try to push others down to, to bring yourself up. Just like the envious person, they're still, trying to, they're still treating others wrong. They're still trying to put others down on the deep level beneath the surface. That's the same fruit that just fell on a different side of the tree from the envious person. Being envious and being boastful are still rooted in the fact that we have not realized. For a Christian to be envious and or boastful, is, is, is to, it displays that we as Christians have not realized the fact that we have received agape as children of God. We're still trying to build ourselves up, determine some type of validity about ourselves or, or some type of dignity or value or worth for ourselves when God says, I have made you mine. You are a child of God. 
I love you. I treasure you. I have died for you to make you my own, and you will reign with me in heaven one day. And we're still trying to boost ourselves up either by tearing others down or by reminding others of how great we are. This part of the chapter reveals why we have to understand agape, Christian love, in a different way than we understand the word love that we commonly use. We commonly use the word love to describe any type of feeling for affection of someone, any type of feeling that, that, that we care for someone. But agape requires strength. Agape requires security in who you are. Agape requires some, some type of stability and understanding of the worth that you have in God. This is so much deeper than what we generally understand love to be. We need to have received agape if we're going to extend it to others. We need to be rooted and grounded in the love of God if we're going to extend it to others. Paul goes on and says, it does not insist on its own, on its own way. So agape doesn't focus on getting its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. The Greek word for irritable there means to be stirred or provoked. It's actually used twice in the Bible. The other time that it's used is referring to Paul. He goes to the city of Athens and it says that his spirit was provoked because of all the idols that were there in the city. I bring that up to say I don't believe this is saying that we can't ever be provoked because there are some things that should definitely provoke us. I believe he's saying that it is not easily provoked. Even some translations would interpret it that way. That agape is not easily provoked. That's that word irritable there. And there's actually two Greek words that are translated resentful, which literally means to count wrongs. The same word is used in Romans chapter 4 verse 8, where it says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin, will not count his sin. That's the word that's present in that word resentful when Paul said it is not irritable or resentful. What's his point? You may have heard this passage read before where it says love does not keep any record of wrongs. It's literally saying love is not an accountant that's keeping track of all the times that it's been sinned against. Love is not intentionally trying to hold on to the anger and the resentment that comes when we have been sinned against. Now, I'm not saying that if you haven't forgotten something that you haven't forgiven it. That's not what I'm saying. I believe you can forgive and have not forgotten. But I think sometimes we want to remember. I think sometimes we want to hold on to that anger. I think sometimes we want to continue on being resentful towards other people. I think we don't want to actually do the work to pursue forgiveness of those who have wronged us. We would, we would rather just hold on to We'd rather stay angry and frustrated and resentful towards people. I want to remind us. Of Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, this is God's love for us. I am he who blots out your transgressions for your own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Our God has blotted out our transgressions. Through Christ coming and dying on the cross, taking all of our sin upon himself, dying and resurrecting from the grave, offering forgiveness to all who place faith in him, not counting our sins against us any longer. I believe wholeheartedly that it's impossible to truly worship God for the depth of his forgiveness towards us and hold the sins of our brother and sister against them simultaneously. I don't think it's possible. 
I don't think you can truly worship God for forgiving you of the hundreds upon hundreds upon thousands of times that you have sinned against him and truly walk in, in Holy Spirit-powered gratitude because of that and hold something against your brother and sister for the five times they've sinned against you. I don't think it's possible. I, I believe that if we, are, if we are being an accountant against the sins of others in the ways that they have sinned against us, I believe it's because we haven't grasped the forgiveness that we've received. We actually haven't understood and, 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 and sought to wrap our minds around and embrace the, the level and degree of forgiveness that all of us have received. We don't fully extend agape because we haven't fully understood it and received it ourselves. And it's not that God hasn't, hasn't offered it to us and given it to us. It's just, it's just that we haven't received it. We haven't embraced it. We haven't immersed ourselves in the reality of our forgiveness. We'll continue reading verse 6. Paul says, it does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. I could preach a whole sermon on this point alone. Real love is not okay with wrongdoing. True love is not okay with wrongdoing. It does not rejoice in sin. Fam, we have to stand strong on this one, especially now, because we live in a world that's obsessed with the idea that if you declare that someone's lifestyle is sinful, that you hate them. That's the idea. That if you declare that what someone is doing is wrong, something that they, that they love to do, that they hold on to, that they find their identity in to some degree, that if you say that that is wrong and it's offensive against God, then they believe now that you're against them. Like, there is no way for me to simultaneously say, I love you and you're wrong. But Paul says agape does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. We believe, we wouldn't say this, if you truly love me, you would agree with me. Here's the way we switch it up. If you truly love me, wouldn't you support me? Wouldn't you support me in this if you truly loved me? Wouldn't you just say that this is okay and that I should do whatever makes me happy and whatever makes me feel good and makes me feel more fulfilled? Wouldn't you agree with me if you love me? Many of us truly believe that the only way to be loving is to affirm any and every choice that someone makes that, and as they are in pursuit of their own happiness. And if you say anything to the contrary, that you're a bigot, and you're afraid of them because they're different from you. Many of us, as Christians, in the room right now, we, when, when other Christians confront us and tell us that we're wrong and living in sin, we feel attacked. We want them to rejoice with us in our wrongdoing, but that's not what love does. But our hearts have been so corrupted by sin, our hearts have been so corrupted for our desire for sin, by, by a misunderstanding of what love is, that we can't even really see and perceive love when it's right in front of us. We can't see it. We can't understand it when someone is rebuking us and calling us away, to, away from sin and refusing to rejoice in our wrongdoing with us, that that is actually what agape is. Proverbs 27.6 says it like this. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. That word profuse means abundant. It means to have a lot of. 
What it's saying is that the person that's just going to say yes to you and just affirm every decision that you make and never confront you and never tell you that you're wrong is actually your enemy. The person who would never confront you and challenge you and tell you you need to stop doing this and you need to begin doing this, that person is an enemy and they have many kisses. They will shower you with this flattery and make you think they're for you, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. That a friend who is willing to say things that's going to hurt your feelings. A friend that's willing to call you out. Those wounds are faithful. You need people in your life who do not rejoice in your wrongdoing, who will call it what it is. And oftentimes our shame, oftentimes our insecurity, will lead us to reject those people, to push them away. And if they call us out, we'll respond in such a way so that they know to never, ever do that again. It is a terrifying thing when we actually desire enemies more than we desire friends. When we actually desire those who will let us walk face first into our own destruction than those who will rebuke us and call us to turn away. Are you a friend to the people in your life? Do you truly love them? Do you truly have agape for them? I'm not asking if you have feelings in your heart of concern and care for them. I'm I'm asking you, do you have agape in your heart for the people in your life, for the Christians in this room, if you're a member of our church? Are you truly a friend? And this is where Paul's definition of agape collides so much with our world, collides so much, so heavily with our world. But we have to keep in mind the greatest act of love in the history of the universe is Jesus Christ coming to die on the cross for us. He is able to both display extreme grace, extreme mercy, extreme love, extreme kindness, and without hesitation tell us you are wrong and this is how you need to live. He's our example. We can't argue that he does not actually love, that he would die for his people to save us. And in his love, he also corrects us. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with truth. Verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The best way I know how to explain what he's saying in verse 7 is that true love, agape love, is unstoppable. It's unstoppable. It'll endure anything. It'll continue to believe. It'll continue to have hope no matter what. It'll continue to bear with the ones that we love It'll continue to believe and hope and endure. In short, it doesn't give up on people. It does not ever wash its hands of people and say, I pray for you, I've talked to you, I've helped you before, and you keep doing the same thing, I'm done. I'm not praying for you anymore. I'm not doing anything else for you. It's saying that agape never does that. Never does that. It endures all things. It continues to believe. It continues to hope. It is unstoppable. It is a powerful force to be able to continue and bear with somebody despite all of the wrong that they have done. It never says, I'm done. I'm done with you. It never completely writes people off. The person in your life that keeps making the same mistake over and over again, when you keep telling them the right thing to do over and over again, have you given up on them? Have you written them off? Listen, I understand that some relationships are toxic, and I'm not saying there doesn't need to be boundaries, but I'm saying, have you just completely written them off? It's like, I ain't even trying to pray for them no more. Have you written that person off? 
the one that's frustrating, the one that's aggravating, the one that's like, I don't even know what else to continue to do for you because you keep making the same mistake over and over and over again. Have you written them off? Have you put them in a box that's like, this person is never going to change? This person can never change. This person is always going to be this way. Have you boxed them in that way? I ask that question a different way. Have you boxed the Holy Spirit in that way? To actually believe and say out loud with your mouth that he cannot change this person, especially if they're a Christian. Love allows us to continue to believe in what our God can do. And if you need proof to know that God can do that, look at yourself. Because there are sins in your life that you've continued to do over and over and over again. And you've seen the Bible and people have prayed for you and people have encouraged you. And you've continued in the same sin over and over and over again. Look at how God has loved you. He has not given up. He continues to pursue no matter what. If you're his, if you're his child, you can turn your back to him and run as fast as you can. And he'll continue to come after you. And we don't want to stop and pause just to pray for people that are continuing to come back for us, ask for help. And I'm saying he chases us down. His love stops at nothing. Some of us, I don't even want to know where we would be if God hadn't just been like, nope, I'm coming after you and I'm bringing you back. I don't even want to know where we would be. This love that we have received again and again after we mess up over and over and over again, it's unstoppable. Agape, at the very nature of who God is, is unstoppable. Let's keep reading. Pick up at verse 8. We'll get through verses 8 through, 8 through 13, and then I'll conclude. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So Paul's making a point that love, agape, is never going to end. It'll go forever. There's going to be a day we're going to go and be with Jesus. Nobody's going to prophesy anymore. Nobody's going to speak in tongues anymore. All the gifts will be gone. But what will still be there? Love. Agape will still be there. It's not going away. All the, the spiritual gifts, we won't need those anymore. But love, we will still need. Verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been known. Many people actually read verse 11 outside of context. Many people see it as an example that we need to grow up and let go of things of the past that we did when we were children. We need to grow up and be more mature and respond like men and women, like adults. That's actually not Paul's point here. He's not using this example of growing up to teach us how to be a man, he's actually using it to display the fact that at some point things change, that there's a point that you reach, a certain level of maturity, a point when things absolutely change. And he's saying when we reach that point, when we go on to be with him, things are going to change and love will last and many of the other things we elevate over love will not. They will cease. They will end. He's saying when I became a man, some of the things I did as a child, they cease. Just like when we go on to be with the Lord, these spiritual gifts will Cease. Verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. He concludes by saying that prophecy, tongues, the gift of knowledge, all these amazing spiritual gifts, they're going to be gone when we get to glory. But love is still going to be there. Then he brings up three of the most cherished pillars of the Christian faith. Faith itself, hope, 
and love, which is agape. And he says agape is even the greatest of these. It's greater than faith. It's greater than hope. He says that nothing is greater than agape. And that makes sense. We saw in 1 John chapter 4 that God is agape. It's at the essence of his very nature. Paul has revealed to us today that agape, it's action. It's what we can see. It's also internal and unseen. It's, it's complex. It requires strength. It requires security in Christ. It is what we receive from God. And if we don't receive it from him, we can't fully and truly extend it to others. It is beautiful. It is glorious. It will last forever. And outside of God himself, outside of God himself, it is the absolute greatest thing that you could have, agape. So we thank God for sending Jesus, for without him, we would not know what agape was. We saw what love, what agape truly is when Christ came and died for us. We want to celebrate that when we take communion in, in just a moment here. Father, thank you for the way that you love us. Thank you for your self-sacrificial love for your love that doesn't end, for your love that can't be stopped, for your love that will last forever. Father, will you grow us in understanding your love for us? Will you grow us in, in remembering how you have forgiven us, how you have been patient with us, how you have been kind to us? Father, strengthen us with your love that we will know what it is to be loved in these ways and thus know how to extend this love to others. Father, I pray for everyone in the room who's having trouble being, being patient, having trouble being kind, having trouble showing true agape. Father, I pray for people in this room who, who thought of specific people today that they're having trouble being patient with and having trouble forgiving. Father, would you encourage us with just how much you have forgiven us? For those of us who enjoy keeping count of the times that we've been wrong. Will you help us to remember how you have blotted out our transgressions and how you don't remember our sins and our wrongs just so you can throw it back against us when we come to you? Thank you for making us clean. Thank you for making us yours. Thank you for loving us. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.